I uh, hope you're well. Uh, this episode is a very, very special episode to me. I've got my dear friend, Lucas Handworker. He's a fascinating friend, and it's rare that I get to, like, sort of pester him with these sort of, like, questions and sort of interview him, but I really enjoyed it. I just, I've really listened a lot. Lucas has a ton to say. Just so he's got a wealth of knowledge in, in his mind. And he's a hypnotist, and, and there's this sort of, like, allure or illusion or mystery surrounding uh, hypnotism and, and hypnotists. And sometimes it could be a little bit showboaty in Hollywood and sort of like on TV. Um, and sometimes it feels very like mystical and strange. And, and I think we did a pretty good job at sort of breaking some of it down. But at the end of the day, there is this element of it that's just pure mystery. But uh, it, it's really, really fascinating. And, and, and I've seen him work. I've seen him perform. I've seen him uh, do hypnotism and it, it's just it's a it's incredible to see it's like it'll it really stretches your mind and stretches the imagination and reminds you just how grand life is and what's possible so really really enjoyed just listening to him talk and asking him these questions and thank you so much uh to lucas for for letting me pester him with questions and i hope you really enjoy this episode <laughs> Lucas, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me here. Uh, yeah, you're having me. Uh, we're we're in the Bronx. You're not from the Bronx, though. Where are you from? I'm from Florida originally. You're. I feel like because um, you and I have known each other quite a while. Like uh, yeah, a few years now. Your life could have gone like I feel like in many different directions. You could have been like a Florida man headline. <laughs> I think you had that potential. But uh, you're very impressive, um, friend. Um. I, like I don't know you um, as as like what you do. Like I don't know you as a hypnotist. Like I think we met at a party. Where did we meet? Uh, yeah, I think we met in upstate New York at uh, probably. At, I think I met you through Halps, through Rachel Halpert. Yeah, our and, good friend uh, Rachel. Uh, yeah. Up in we met in New Paltz, um, and then I went to a show of yours. You're performing, and and someone was like, "Hey, Lucas is doing hypnotism," and I was like, "Oh, that's crazy." Yeah, you know that's. So I, I went, and uh, you floored me. You blew my mind. You blew everyone's mind. It was a, it was a fascinating experience. Um, and I think like like a lot of people, I, I sort of had my suspicions about like hypnotism, and I frankly still don't have a very deep understanding of it. I read your yeah. book. Um, I read your book, which helped me understand a bit more. Um, and I like how you sort of explain hypnotism through the through just talking about uh, therapy sessions that you've been giving um and, and through performing it and then just through like conversation but um what like this is a stupid question but what is hypnotism yeah this is a great question and that's something that, that really drew me to hypnosis in the first place was that it's been around in one form or another for an extremely extremely long time you know it's a, i often say it's as old as sleep itself so it is this thing that's been used in every culture all around the world and when we talk about hypnosis, we're talking about a particular process of inducing trance. And what trance is, is an altered state of consciousness. And that's really what it all comes down to. It's about altering consciousness. And people alter their consciousness when they meditate or when they fast or when they you know, climb mountains or go on runs or take psychedelics. Those are all different ways of altering your consciousness and hypnosis is just a, another one of those ways um, but what drew me to it is that it's been around for so long but we still don't really quite know what it is 
we don't really know how it works, and a lot of people who study it still can't agree on whether it's real or not, on whether it's imagined or or it's a sort of mutual agreement to, to make believe, or if it's a real practice and tool. Um, there's still a lot of debate on what it is, but it, it's something that you can use and see the benefit of, even without knowing what it is, which I think is kind of the definition of magic. It's like something you can use, benefit from, without knowing how it works or what it is, really. Um, I think that's really enticing to me anyway. Yeah, you don't have to believe in it uh, in order for it to be true. Uh, it is true. Now, I, I came to it um, in a very, like, I think suspicious manner just because I grew up with religion and I left that religion um, very, very dramatically. And so I, I'd, you know, I'm very suspicious of any sort of um, suspensions of belief and whatnot. But... I had experiences at your shows and, and, and whatnot that, like, it's real. Like, it is real, man. Like, um, but I, I love that. So, okay, th- there's this showbiz uh, yeah. side of hip- hypnotists, right? We all know, like, the hypnotist oh, on like, Jimmy uh, Kimmel. Like, and, like stage hypnotists. Yeah. So d- does that gross you out? Like, as someone, I know you have a lot of respect for, for the art form. Like, mm-hmm. how do you feel about that? What, what is that world? Is it is it real hypnotism? Is it just... Yeah, well, stage hypnotists are doing hypnosis. It's a very, very particular kind of hypnosis, um, but it's still hypnosis. You know, I, I kind of fluctuate. I can't hate on it because in a lot of ways, if it wasn't for stage hypnosis, hypnosis would not have stuck around because there was a period of time where when hypnosis first became popularized, it was for medical uses. It was to help people with sort of mental health issues or physical health issues, chronic pain, things like that. And the, the scientific and medical community largely dismissed it. And they tried to just push it out. Um, the government, government did this. Uh, really high, high up uh, sort of physicians did this. And so hypnosis kind of got pushed into the fringes what are we was, talking, 70s? Like, when is no, it? this is like back in... Uh, well, there's sort of two histories to hypnosis. There's the one history of the word hypnosis, which is really goes back to maybe the 1700s with, with a guy named Franz Mesmer, which is actually the reason we have the word mesmerize now. It comes from Franz Mesmer. Wow. And Franz Mesmer was this uh, Austrian, I believe, um, hypnotist, basically, and he believed that there were these invisible currents of energy moving through all of our bodies and that you could manipulate these currents of energy in other people to essentially enact change over their state of being and even over any problem that they may have. He called it animal magnetism and he hosted these sort of salons in in Vienna and did his animal magnetism, which was basically a really early form of hypnosis and it grew really popular, and he claimed it could cure all these problems. And so the, um, a couple of European governments basically got together, commissioned a committee to analyze his work and judge its legitimacy. And on this committee actually was Benjamin Franklin, was one of the people, among, uh, along with a few other really prominent scientists at the time. Grandfather. Yeah, basically. And they all decided collectively that it, it wasn't real and that it, it was it was BS. And I think, that, I can't recall the test that they, they did, but it was basically Mesmer had to present his findings to them and, to legitimize it, and they basically decided that it was BS. And so after that, mesmerism, or hyp- hypnosis as we call it today, became kind of uh, outmoded. It's, it was, it's, you know, Franz Mesmer actually was 
mocked. He had to go into exile. He was actually not seen or heard from again. Like his whole career was over. He just sort of went and hid somewhere and he retired. Uh, pretty much, he got canceled. Yeah, so he went off. But what what happened was a lot of students of Mesmer were doing these stage uh, animal magnetism presentations. You know, kind of like stage hypnosis shows. They were doing them in theaters. They were doing them at people's homes. It was more of a form of entertainment. It was kind of a curiosity. And one day, this uh, physician named James Braid, who was a Scottish physician, saw an animal magnetism show. Basically, he saw a stage hypnosis show. And he saw the stage hypnotist induce a trance in a participant and induce anesthesia. So she couldn't feel anything in a certain part of her body, in like her arms or her legs. And him being a physician, he was very interested in this. He was like, wow, this person's pain is gone. I wonder what I could do with this. So he went back and he started using it on his patients. And he found it really, really effective at treating chronic pain. And he eventually started using it uh, during surgery. And at that time, the way that you would undergo surgery was you'd either get really, really drunk or they would knock you out with a you know rubber mallet or they would give you a belt to bite down on uh, and hope that you passed out before the pain killed you. That's, that was the height of you know sort of medical advances at the time, at least in Europe. Yeah. And so James Braid started using animal magnetism at the time, it was called still, mm-hmm. uh, based on seeing a stage performer. And so then he found that it worked really well and it became the sort of the, the, the mainstay at the time um, in, in surgery. So it was used to basically anesthetize people. So it's the earliest anesthesia that we know of in, in Western medical histories is hypnosis. And James Braid uh, was the one who came up with the name hypnosis. It, that was him who, who called it that. And he was actually really embarrassed to even admit that he did it for a long time, mm-hmm. even though it was very helpful. And I think that kind of speaks to still the where hypnosis is at today. It's, it's either really feared or it's ridiculed, but wherever it's used, it does good. And that's how it was even back at its onset. Um, it's funny because I said there are two histories, right? And that's the history of hypnosis. Um, there's a lot more we can get into, but trance itself is much older than Franz Mesmer or James Braid. Trance is altered states. It's transcendentalism. Well, no. trance is, is an altered being state. Being in a trance. So mm. depending on what state of consciousness you're in, you have different brainwave activity. So waking state right now, the one we're in right now, is beta, right? So we're in beta brainwave states, which mm. is waking, alert. Then there's alpha, which is kind of daydreamy. That's like when you're looking at the window on a car ride or writing poetry, things like that. And then there's theta, which is what you go into when you're really zoning out hard, when you're meditating very deeply, when you're sort of in the flow of exercise, running, something like that. Or if you're playing music, you're probably going into theta if you're really into it. And then there's delta, which is sleep. So an altered state is anytime you change your brainwave pattern. So anytime you go from uh, beta to alpha to theta to delta, you're changing your state of consciousness. And so trance is just an altered state. It's, it's theta. It's, it's that in-between place where you're not quite asleep, you're not quite awake fully. It's you're kind of dancing on that line. And, and hypnosis is just a way to bring you to that state of consciousness. But it's natural. So we've been going there for thousands of years, you know, back to chanting, you know, praying, meditating, all of that is our very natural ways of inducing trance. So it's, it's very, it's much more ancient than 17th or 18th century Europe, 
Um, so there's kind of two stories to hypnosis, if you want to look at it that way. Wow. Um, I love the term animal magnetism. Yes. Yeah. Um, it makes sense to me. I could just, I could see that because, like, there's, um, I know that scientists who say they want to go underwater and explore, like, and, and get really close to animals, they'll wear these suits mm-hmm. that are made out of, like, the same material that a microwave is lined with, and it blocks okay. energy. Yeah. So that they get much closer to animals with this stuff because animals don't feel their energy. Like, it's, it's not smell. It's not sight. It's just blocking energy, the, yeah. like the vibe. Like, yeah. Does that, does that resonate? Like, is that, um, like, because that's, that's what I picture when I picture animal magnetism, just the, the yeah. energy ex- being exchanged uh, with bodies that aren't, like, verbal or... Yeah, I think, you know, I think the highest ideal of hypnosis inherently has some intuitive quality to it. It does have some energetic quality to it. And there's been a lot of effort to make it systematic, make it, you know, very, um, very scientific. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think inherently it is a kind of a mystical thing. It does have mystical qualities to it. Um, and I do think there's an energy, there's a collective energy, right? You, you can just feel when, and this is obviously, you know, uh, a little bit foreign these days, but if you go to a concert or something or, you go to, especially a music venue, you can feel the energy of the room and it yeah. can feel good or it can feel bad. And oh, I've yeah. been to some shows where it kind of, you could feel the energy turning yeah. or getting darker or getting violent, or it can go back and become lighter. And yeah, I've been on stage for some of those. Yeah. yeah. And so, and even as a performer, right. Or if you're a musician, a comedian, any kind of performer, you feel the energy of the room and you work with it. And in some ways, if you're a good performer, right, you, you can guide the energy of the room. You can adjust it. You can kind of meet it where it is and then lean one way or the other and get it to kind of change with you. And in trance, it's the same way. You know, when I'm working with a client, and it doesn't matter what I'm working with them on, you know, anxiety, phobias, trauma, um, focus, motivation, self-worth, anything like that, or, you know, self-image, there's always a feeling that, that's there. And I can feel if they're on edge and I can feel if they're in alpha state or beta state or theta state. I can feel their consciousness changing as we do more trance work and as we induce trance. I can feel their consciousness changing. And there is, there is a, a shift in consciousness that you can see and feel. And it happens all the time. You know, when you ride on the subway, you can feel the consciousness in the room when you're out to dinner, when you're, even if you're sitting in your living room with your spouse or with your friend or with your roommate, um, you can feel, like you said, the vibes in the room and you can feel those vibes changing and it's very fluid, right? It's not, it's not like a light switch. You're sort of flowing in, flowing out. It feels good. And then you laugh and everything changes and then comes back down. And that's what trance is too. It's fluid. Because consciousness is fluid. So you have a heightened awareness of those things. Like, uh, you do. I, I, I think that everyone feels them. Um, but, but one of your talents, gifts, but also, I'm, I'm sure, difficulty is that you have a heightened awareness of those things. Does that ever get exhausting? Um, it's funny because in the last few years, I've started to work with way more clients than I ever have. And now I pretty much only exclusively work with one-on-one clients. And 
at first that was really difficult for me because I was talking to people about essentially their, their deepest troubles, you know, the things that were really plaguing them. And excuse me. And that was at first really difficult because I could feel what they were feeling. And I felt the weight of that situation and of that interaction. And now that I'm doing it so much more often, I actually feel less sensitive in a way. I feel like I have more control over it. And I always say this, you know, it, it's a muscle. And because it's a muscle, it's something that you can, you can work and you can get better at it. And, um, and in the same way, right, not, not being tuned into it enough is, just means you don't have control over the muscle or it's not strong enough. And likewise, not being able to control it and being overrun with other people's feelings also means that you can't control it or you don't have control over it enough. As a kid, I, I know that you were you were quite the loner as a kid. You spent a lot of time in your room, which I can relate to. Um, but I think you had um, you had this awareness, but you didn't really know what it was, or or you didn't really know what to do with it, right? And, and I say awareness, not even a very mystical way. I think you're just a very sensitive person and. Sort of like a very simple and beautiful thing. You're a sensitive person, and you've learned how to channel it in very creative and um, important ways. But as a kid, were you? Uh, you spent a lot of time in your room, just alone. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think looking back on it, I think that's a function of growing up in Florida. To be honest with you, and I think, I think in every conservative city and town, or every. Every place where art, for instance, is not really that important or um, personal expression is not the most important thing. Like where I grew up, the football team was really, really important, right? Yeah. Money was really, really important. How nice of a car you drove was really, really important. Yeah. And how much money you made and how attractive you were or how attractive the person you were dating was. Those are the things that seemed really important where I grew up. And even the art scene where I grew up was again, about how much money you earned, how much money you, you could spend on a piece of art. So I just think because of where I grew up and the people that were around me, I wasn't really given much other choice in a way. You know, I, I definitely am sensitive and I, you know, I was and I still am. I think now I have much more control over it. But back then, I was really feeling what was out there, you know, what was in my environment in, down in Florida and felt kind of discouraged by it, felt a little like a kind of like the black sheep, like a little bit of an outsider. Like I didn't really belong in, in those circles. You know, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't interested in the things that other people were interested in and they weren't interested in what I was interested in and they were kind of mean about it. So <laughs> I was left with very few choices. So I was just like, you know, I'd rather just stay in here and just read books and just study stay in and, your room and, and, and just learn. And, and I became, and I'm still like this, very obsessed with learning. I love the idea of having a room with books and with, you know, with resources and everything you need to enrich yourself and learn things that you can take with you. And when I was really young, I got really into magic and sleight of hand magic. And that's the perfect thing for someone to do who doesn't want to interact with other people because... <laughs> you just spend, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 hours a day practicing and you don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. And then when you do go out into crowds or interact with other people, you have this skill in your back pocket that not only people love and lose their minds over, but it also 
creates a kind of a separation between you because it's empowering. It, it is very empowering. It's a superpower, yeah, just hidden. And you me. don't have to nobody knows who you are and you don't have to show it either. Yeah. You could just show them a piece of magic and they love you, but they don't even sometimes people wouldn't even know my name and they and they'd be really, really enticed. Sure. And that's not only empowering, but it's also a sense of protection, right? Because you don't have to, you don't have to show who you are. You can yeah. just kind of wear that, that cape. You know, you can kind of pretend. Yeah, man. I was once at a Thanksgiving uh, meal, and um, my partner's aunt was talking about this hypnotist who was so cute and uh, was working on a stage uh, in Woodstock, and I was like. Dude, I think I, I think oh, is I, that me? Okay. that was you, it was you, man. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, you certainly impacted her life. Uh, so that, that was like a surreal. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's funny. Yeah, it was a cute moment, man. So who, who, it was your, your partner's, her, her, her aunt. Aunt. Okay. Yep. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, you know, it's surreal. Um, all right. I have a funny, I have a funny story. So I, I, I went, I seen you uh, perform quite, quite a bunch of times. Um, back in the day when, when you were still, when you were focused on performing and I enjoyed it on multiple levels. One, you're just a friend and want to come to the show, you know, see a friend perform. Um, I also just appreciated, um, that ultimately you were trying to give a good show and I like learning from people who are trying to give a show cause I'm a performer and, and I want to be better at it, you know? Not that I could like literally take anything you're doing and incorporate it into my, uh, in, you know, into the guitar. But, um, so, uh, so I, I remember messaging you, I was like, Hey, I'm low on cash. Um, can I like, can you get me into your show for free? And you're like, Oh yeah, of course. And I remember just like bothering me. I'm like, why did I say low on cash? That's so stupid. That's like a dumb statement. I remember just bothering me. Anyway, I'm at the show and that day, so it was in the village and right near the show, there's a guitar luthier, uh, who I, I brought a couple of my guitars for him to work on because they needed setups. And so I had a lot of cash <laughs> in my pocket that I was going to pay for this guitar, uh, for this luthier, this guitar maker. And I'm sitting at your show, and part of the show was you had some numbers and you showed them to the audience, and then you, you just would point at someone random. And I'm not really sure what happened. Basically, you knew uh, through through your work uh, exactly how much money I had in my pocket. It was a lot of money. It was like $346 and whatever. And it was one of those great moments at a show where everyone's waiting and I'm like counting and counting. And, oh, oh, is okay. it correct? I remember, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Do. Uh, do you remember that? Do you remember that I moment? I do. I remember, I remember all the suspense being built sure. as you counted. As you counted all the bills. I, I, and I, for, I took it as like... A, and I know I'm, I know I'm reading too much into it. I took it as like uh, <laughs> me saying, "Hey, I, hey, hey, buddy, I can't afford your show." And then you're like, "Oh yeah, you can't." <laughs> I'll, uh, oh, that's funny. No, I, I honestly, uh, no, I was not. People think there's so much there. There, people think there's so much more planning sure. to those shows than there than there was. Did you see anything this last? Did you see anything like? Beginning no. of this year, end of last year. No, I didn't catch your latest okay. show because you were. I don't know if you were around here much. Yeah, I was doing some. It was mostly in the city. It was okay. mostly here, but I was doing shows. You know, back in December, January. Okay, that might have been the the ones that I. I, I think saw. you saw them before. So the, okay. the newer ones though are like even more open ended, but but no, that was not. Uh, 
not intentional. I can no, see how that could be read. That's that a cute way, moment, could, man. That was I fun. See it. That was it, it was very fun. And I loved watching everyone um react to what you were doing. And and I liked I liked seeing you um because I, I think there's a lot of different roles that a performer is playing. One, you're just trying to be in the thing. You're just trying to do if it's a song, you're trying to be in the song and like then you're also trying to sing it well and like hit that note. So that's more of like maybe a intellectual thing. And you're just like there's these practical like um, what's going on in the room and how to manage that in real time. So I just loved watching you perform. Um, but it's pretty cool to think about that now you're you're doing one on one. You're working with people. Like, do you find that you're 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 able to you're able to impact people's lives in a positive way more by just one on one? You're up close. You can touch them. Like, mm-hmm. th- there's this real. Uh... Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I've, I've been. I was just thinking about this last night actually. Um, there's kind of a story behind this Please. that was such a perfect, I, I tend to think that, you know, when you fall asleep at night and you have a dream, you can interpret that dream as a message for your life. Right. And with everyone I work with, a lot of what we do is dream interpretation or a, a good portion of it. But I think that the things that actually happen in your life in waking life can be interpreted as a message for your life. And I had a moment like that that felt like a dream and it was kind of a message to me. And it was a little while ago, but I was at a show and I was sort of in the standing room area, the orchestra area near the front, right near the stage. And like we were talking about, the energy of the room changed and it kind of became darker. And I guess people were moshing in another part of it, which is very strange because it wasn't that kind of show. <laughs> people were, it was a, I don't know if anyone out there, or I know you know him, but it was a Mac DeMarco show. Oh, okay. And yeah, like there's like 16 year olds moshing at his, his gigs. It's pretty hilarious. Oh, really? Okay. No, have it's you, have nuts. you experienced you, that in person? I have, but you would not expect it. Yeah. He, I was not expecting it. Yeah. And I was right in the front. Oh, and God. I wasn't even in the part where the moshing was happening, but what was happening was the people were getting pushed closer oh. and closer and closer together Hell. until you're literally oh. more than shoulder to shoulder. Ate you know, that. it's just like really cramped. And I, that's like my worst nightmare. I hate <laughs> crowds of people. I <laughs> can't deal with crowd. I hate county fairs and theme parks and malls and any place where there's too many people gathered together. I don't <laughs> like it. So this was like my worst nightmare. I only went up there because the person I was with was like, come on, let's go up to the front of the stage. Yeah, the you love of my, my shows, by the way. There's no one there. All right, keep going. <laughs> Keep going. No, it's mellow. It's mellow. But anyway, so it's like super cramped. I'm starting to feel kind of panicky because to me it's like the worst case scenario. And my first instinct is to turn around and I'm trying to like get out of the crowd, but I can't because it's just a wall of people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. And then I stop and I don't know what it was. Maybe it was an intuition, but it was all kind of a blur at this point. But I just took a deep breath. I turned around and I looked at the person directly behind me. I, they saw that they were talking to somebody so they couldn't see. So I tapped them on the shoulder. I made eye contact and I said, excuse me, can I get by? And they stepped out of the way. And then there was a person behind them. I tapped them on the shoulder. I made direct eye contact. I said, excuse me, can I get by? And they stepped out of the way. And I just kept doing that, making direct eye contact and directly asking one person at a time until I was out of the crowd. And it was like, I could breathe again. It was like the sunshine piercing through the storm. It was when I got out of that crowd, because all that, you know, yeah. crushing anxiousness was Sigh gone. Of relief. Yeah, a huge relief, you know, because in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'll be trampled. And, and people were getting hurt because people were falling down and then people were kind of moving over them. But 
what that made me realize was that you can try and affect a lot of people at the same time, which is really, really very difficult, or you can really directly affect and really powerfully affect one person at a time. And in doing so, you will affect a lot of people. And that's what that moment taught me. Because if I just try to get out of the crowd and just try and go wholesale, just leave, you know, run out or push through the crowd, it would have been, been impossible. And it would have yeah. pushed back against me. Yeah. But instead, I ask each person making eye contact and really having a moment with them and saying, excuse me, can I get by you? And they go, yeah, of course. And they let me by one at a time. And so that's kind of what the last few years have been is, is realizing that I can do more good for more people if I work with one person at a time and have a deeper, more immediate, more real impact on one person at a time. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, look, I, it's, it's just exciting. Um, I think um, seeing a friend like change and adapt um, and I think have... Like anyone who recognizes that there's more than one side to what you do and there's different ways to attack it, um, I think those are the people that become successful and those are the people that are happy. And, and like that's just a more fun way to do it. Like if you keep banging on the same door, um, it uh, I think it gets a little bit trite. And so, yeah, watching watching you like make that transition is exciting. Um, do you think you'll ever go back to performing? Or? Um, yeah, well, before before all of this whole mess started... Yeah, we're in a global pandemic, if anyone's listening and you don't know. Yeah, if you find this in a time capsule or, or uh, on a meteorite on a foreign planet, yeah, um, we're on Earth right now. And Most of my viewership is yeah on Earth? Okay. It's not on Earth. Oh, not on Earth. Okay, okay. They get the advanced uh, cable. But yes, I think I will, I will eventually... Um, what I was doing was kind of group sessions where everyone who came in, um, this is what I was doing back in like December, January, before the, the quarantine. Mm. Um, I'd have everyone come in and write down a question. And it could be a question they want to have the answer to. It could be an area of their life they have issue with. It could be a, a bad habit or a decision they want to make but don't know how. It could be anything. And they fold those up and they just put their initials on them. They fold it up. Everyone tosses them in a bowl. This happens before the show starts. And then the show is basically me pulling out slips and working with people. Um, that's the majority of the show. And, um, I, and I sometimes bring up a few people. Um, at a certain point in the show, I, I ask people who have fears, a specific fear or phobia, to come up on stage. And I work with four or five people relieving their fears at the same time. Um, and I've had people really write down very profound things and very heavy subjects. I had... Like what? So I had someone in Los Angeles, I was doing a couple of shows out there um, last, late last year, and he asked how he could overcome the death of his son. Mm. Um, I had people asking about changing jobs. I had people asking about leaving their partners, leaving their husbands, leaving their wives, um, quitting their jobs, starting their own businesses. I had people asking about health issues. I had people asking about you know fears, anxieties, traumas, um, really, really big things, and the the fellow who asked about his son who had passed away how he could over how he could sort of let go of that i remember when he said what he wrote down and the whole audience just like the room just uh, the air just sort of sucked out of the room mm. it was just, everyone just went silent and there was such a, a heaviness um 
but I realized there was a catharsis there too sure. for someone to share really the biggest thing that they're struggling with, not just him, but everyone in the room to share it with a room full of strangers and to have everyone listen and not judge and just be there with the person. And it was amazing. And you could, there, there were, even that alone was kind of healing. And then I would work with them and, and counsel them basically, maybe do some hypnosis with them to change or remove a fear. Um, and that's kind of what the shows became really was just a group, a group session and uh, I still get messages from people who were at the shows oh, in uh, like in December, in January, months and months ago. Um, so yeah, the, if and when I do decide to pick up again, that's that's what it's going to look like. I love that. Um, what uh, it, it's cool because um, I have two points I want to make. One, um, like your line of work, you tend to bring out sort of like like you're saying, people aren't coming you. To you with their small problems, they're coming to you with their thing that they're struggling with the most. Yeah, um, they're not coming to you like, "Hey, I I just hate flossing. I just hate flossing my teeth. <laughs> Man, like, it's bad." Um, so, zooming out, what what is? Um, I know everybody's different, but what, do, is there a theme? What is what is humanity struggling with? What are people struggling with? Among like the people I'm working with, or yeah, yeah. What, are, what are you seeing? Is there a theme through it all, or it's just like yeah? I think I've just, I've just been talking about this recently with clients, but there's this great scene in I Love Lucy where Lucy is you know Lucille Ball is uh, that's who plays Lucy right Lucille mm. Ball okay okay I'm not messing that up um, <laughs> that's my biggest fear as well like, where yeah. where she is in that sort of candy factory, that I think it's chocolates, like a chocolate factory. It's a really famous scene. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, she's working at this like chocolate factory and there's a conveyor belt going by of chocolates, mm-hmm. right? And her job is to sort of check them and make sure that they're, you know, they're proper. And as the chocolates go by, she realizes that she missed one. She missed one, so she picks it up and, and eats it to try and get <laughs> rid of the evidence, right? But then in trying to eat it, she misses two more. Ooh. And then she has to eat those. Right. And then in doing that, she misses five more, and then she has to eat those. And then in doing that, and so on and so on, and it becomes you know this sort of backed up conveyor belt of There's chocolates in her scene. mouth that's just completely full of chocolate. It's a great image. And I think the reason that we laugh at that, and the reason it's so funny, is because it's so human. Sure. And that human thing is in the effort to solve the problem, we create more problems. Mm-hmm. And that I think is what I notice more than anything is someone will have an, a feeling or an anxiety. And then they'll analyze it, and they'll and in in an effort to analyze it, they're trying to solve it. Oh, where did this come from? Why do I feel this? How can I fix it? And that effort to fix it creates more anxiety. And then that anxiety creates more effort to fix it, and then that creates more anxiety, and that creates more, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you end up with this really, this really negative spiral where the harder they try to fix it, the more it, it, it sort of regenerates, then the bigger it gets. And you even see this where people's reactions to a problem create more problems. So if someone has a traumatic event and their reaction to it is to be hypervigilant, right? Because they're, they're traumatized, they're always expecting the worst. But then that hypervigilance becomes anxiety. So now not, not only do you have trauma, now you have anxiety. And then your anxiety keeps you from being close to people. Mm. And now not only do you have trauma, you have anxiety, but now you don't have relationships. Yeah, you're lonely. And, and so, again, each one is a reaction to the other. And so I think, I think, and this is such a, a kind of a, 
I think it's talked about so much, but the first thing to do when you have a problem is to just be with it. And the, the metaphor I love is if you're walking through the forest and you realize you're lost, what do you do? What do you do? You stop. Hmm. You stop and you look around, right? You don't just start sprinting in one direction. Um, so when you have a problem, you should just stop and just look at it and not judge it, not analyze it, not muscle it, not run. Just look at it. Just stop and just look around. And from there, you'll be able to make a choice. But if you just react, you're going to get more lost in those woods. You're going to have more problems than you had to begin with. Um, so that that's probably the biggest thing that I've been noticing is, again, that in the effort to solve the problem from that franticness, from that fear especially, you just create more problems. You and I both val- uh, v- value solitude, I would say. Um, and I-, I like being alone, uh, but, I, you know, it's sort of like you like to be alone, but you don't like to be lonely. And I think people people are struggling with both sides of those um, uh, do you like how do you see uh, being alone versus being like antisocial what's the difference and sure how do people deal with it like how do people figure out um, I need to be I need to spend more time alone or like I've, I've been uh, avoiding too many people I think it depends on what you're doing when you're alone really um because when you, for me, like, I like being alone, but I'm not being alone so that I'm not around other people. I'm being alone because I like doing the things that I do when I'm alone. Mm. So I'm choosing those things rather than making a choice against seeing others. You know, so antisocial means that you're anti seeing other people, but being alone means that you are choosing to be alone. So it's really about what you're choosing to do and why you're choosing to do it. If you're saying, you know, well, I'd rather just sit around here doing nothing than see other people. I don't want to see other people. That's antisocial. Whereas if you say, I want to stay here and write and read and sing and listen to music and meditate and just do whatever you do, then you're not antisocial. You're choosing those things. You're just choosing things that are more interesting to you. Um, I always say rather be alone than in bad company. Yeah. So... Is there um, is there a religious component to hypnotism at all? Is it hundred percent? Well, that that's kind of the area that I'm really very interested in because um, right now, you know, what I do is spiritual counseling. I have a doctorate in divinity, so I do spiritual counseling, and then I also do hypnotherapy. And some some would say that spirituality and religion, at least in its in my opinion, and it's in its most in its most distilled form, is about transcendence. It's about exploring deeper and richer realms of consciousness. Right? It's most religions are talking about what happens after you die and a connection to some higher power, and you know it's things beyond what we can see and touch and taste and feel and, and smell and all that. And hypnosis is all about going deeper. It's all about going inside. Uh, and sort of using your mind to go deeper and even go outside of yourself. So I think inherently, yeah, there is, there definitely is a, a, a sort of a spiritual religious component. Most major religions have some component of altered states. Um, that's really dissociated now. 
our culture is really scared of the unconscious and sure. altered states. What it used to be, most religions had some kind of some kind of trance induction. With Christianity, there was fasting. There was even self-flagellation in certain forms of Christianity. You know, the intense pain would basically create a kind of altered state. Um, prayer, chanting, all those things would create altered states if done the right way. Um, in more Eastern religions, you have medita- certain kind of meditations. You have you have all kinds of contemplations, and those also put you in altered states. And in more indigenous cultures, their religious practices, they would do chanting, they would do dancing, they would do meditations, they would do, excuse me, they would do psychedelics, and all that would also induce an altered state. So there, there are a lot of arguments to be made that all religion and spirituality are really about altered states or, or use altered states as a, as a primary element. Um, we've kind of lost that now. It's become... It's become almost academic sure. religion. It's become a little bit academic. It's become kind of intellectual. Um, it's more about the stories and the ideas and the philosophies. Um, but in my opinion, there are better philosophies than, than are in, in, in a lot of religions. Um, sure. So, but yeah, I think there is, I think you can have a religious experience with hypnosis and I've seen people do it. So I definitely, I definitely think it's possible. Um, so I like, Again, I, I love that you're using what would you call it a gift or a talent? Would you call it that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't really. I don't it's talent, it. right? I just, I just do, I just do the thing. Okay. That's all. That's yeah, all. yeah, that's fair. But like, I, I think I'll call it that. So it's a gift. It's a talent, and by gift, I mean it's, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a good thing that you can, that you're better at doing that that someone else can't, and. So you're using it to do good. You're using it to help people. You're using this as a tool to improve other people's lives. Um, how how, do, how does it improve your life? Like, how does it affect your life? Everything that I do with my clients, I, I do with myself. So that's really my measure, really. You know, if, I, if I'm using a certain technique or a concept... Nine times out of ten, or even ten times out of ten, really, I've I've also used it on my on myself. So, any issue or anxiety or problem that comes up for me, like I instantly try to recognize it and then and then resolve it, basically. So I'm kind of always doing uh, counseling with myself. Um, I've learned a lot about people. You learn a lot about people when you talk to, you know, I, I talk to people five six hours a day all around the world, and we're having really intimate conversations, and so. I'm kind of seeing the patterns. I'm seeing the the through lines of human experience. And it helps me in my life because I know what to expect. And I know the perspectives that are being used. Um, so I I think it's just also, I just really enjoy my work. So it really does give me a lot of, a lot of fun. Do you have to, um, I, okay, I watch like, um, I watch musicians on stage. And it is so clear and evident that they're at work. You know, they're, um, they're, they're performing, but they're so not in the thing. Um, and, and I, and I don't even think there's anything wrong with that. There are times when I'm on stage where like, like phoning it in. Yeah. Okay. But I, because I just think if you're performing every night, you're not going to feel it every mm-hmm. night and you're not going to feel it the same throughout a set. Like if you're starting with one song, like you're just not going to feel every song. Yeah. man. and like, and also I don't really think that matters. Like Bruce Springsteen's, uh, one of his biggest or one of his best live albums live at the hammersmith odeon hammersmith 
Odeon, in, uh, in <laughs> London. And he said that, like, he was not there for that show. Like, he was angry. He was pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of the great shows. So do, does your work ever become... Um, do you have to distill it almost to this almost almost transactional? So like, how, how do you be like? How can you be that on? Yeah, right? that's a great question. I think no matter what you do, there are days where you're on your game, and there are days where you are not feeling your best. And again, I don't care if you're a cook, a musician, a writer. Sometimes you're feeling great. Sometimes you're not, and that's because you're human, you know. Right, but that, and that only matters to those people. It doesn't matter uh, to a plumber. Like it doesn't matter. I don't care about my plumber's feeling. I hope. I hope. Well, she's you doing do great. if it affects... I care. What if they mess up your plumbing? Right. Okay. So someone, uh, a performer friend of mine in San Francisco told me, it was a, such a great piece of advice, but he said, ideally, you at your worst day is better than other people at their best day. And yeah. so that's kind of the level you want to get at where even when you're off your game, you're still doing a really, really, really good job. Um, and that's just a sign of mastery, really. You sort of have to have that attitude because otherwise, like, I, I try to have that attitude in, like, in relationships because uh, if I'm having a bad day and I'm, I'm being annoying, uh, you kind of have to look at the people around you and go, hey, if you love them, why – you care about them, but you're also being annoying. It's sort of like, well, you sh- shouldn't you not want them to be around you? So you, have, you do have to get that attitude of, like, well – yeah, but I'm still great. Even on my worst day, I'm still worth being around, worth tolerating. I think, I think perfection is uh, is overrated. I, well, interpersonally, you know, part of what makes you who you are is how you handle stress and bad days. You know, every everybody, a good portion of your days are not going to be great days, and that's just life. And it's it's really all about how you handle that. But I think professionally speaking, like working with clients. Some days I, I don't feel great. You know, I'm a person. I have bad days. I wake up grumpy. And um, my dad told me this, actually, because uh, my dad's a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And so I talk to him about clients and stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, Dad, what happens when, you just, when you're not feeling good? You know, how do you work with people? And uh, pardon my French, but he said, fuck your feelings. <laughs> he said, just do the thing you know is right. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what you're feeling. What it you're doesn't. feeling. You can just... You can just act and speak and do and behave in the way that you know to be the best of your ability. And whatever you're feeling, it doesn't matter. Just fuck your feelings. Just it doesn't matter. Well, I wouldn't say that to anybody else. But for yeah. myself, I can say, oh, absolutely. fuck this. I don't want to feel there's this. A, there's a humility to it. I think that's humility. It's going, well, I might not be feeling my best, but who am I to you know, let that reflect on how I'm going to help someone else? Or I'm, I, You just got to show up and let... Let the the thing do what it do. Um, well, your feelings don't have to to rule you, yeah. but yeah, I mean, for me, the goal is is that even on my worst day, I can be really, really, really good at what I do, and then on my best day, I can change someone's life. Um, that's my goal. I think that's that's something I really enjoy about doing this so much more than the performances that I used to do, because this feels unlimited. You know, it feels unlimited in the sense that I can always get better at this. I can always get better at working with clients. I can always get better at helping people. And I think what's so enticing to me about it is that these skills don't go anywhere. And I will carry these skills with me forever. And I've always really fantasized about the idea of just being able to walk into a room of strangers, 
have a really strong impact on people, positively impact people, change people's lives, you know, if possible. And maybe not even know that I changed their lives and then walk away and then they'll never, you know, they don't know who I am. <laughs> um, even when I was doing magic, that was, that was kind of where it was coming from is I can walk in this room, blow people's minds, turn around, walk out and they'll go, who was that guy? Yeah. You know, and now I'm, I'm doing the same thing now, but instead of magic, it's, it's, oh, my anxiety has gone. Oh, my phobia has gone. Oh, my life has changed. Thank you. You know, is that tied to your own social, social anxiety and feeling panicky in a crowd where you could go, well, I'm feeling anxious uh, because of this crowd. Well, the flip side of that is controlling it, is impacting it positively. Are, are those things tied? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't think I got into magic because I was socially anxious. I I, I was socially anxious, and then I got into magic. Um, <laughs> right. And it definitely helped with that. But mm-hmm. I don't think that was my reason for doing it. I remember the first time I saw a piece of magic close up. And I think it was just like a vanish. It was someone just taking a coin, putting it in their hand, looking at their hand, and then they opened their hand and the coin was gone. And it was a religious experience. It was like, holy cow, what just happened? And that feeling was, I immediately recognized it. Even when I was like, I think I was six years old the first time I saw a piece of magic. And that's when I started doing magic. And I recognized it and I said, that's it. That's the feeling that I want to feel. And that's the feeling that I want to create. And that's it. And it's the same feeling, though. It's that feeling of astonishment. And it is kind of a spiritual, transcendent, transformational feeling. But performative magic is it's fake, right? It's uh, you're, you're deceiving someone. Hypnotism is not. No, I mean, that's, that's what drew me to hypnosis from magic was, wow, this is real magic. Right. This is real magic, and it's yeah. propless. Yeah. I can just walk into a room, nothing but the clothes on my back, and do amazing things. That's what initially drew me to it, because it was more purely the thing that I wanted to do um, than magic was. But magic has its function. You know, it's, in indigenous cultures, it's called the sacred trap. And if you go to see uh, sort of a shaman or a healer in some cultures, they'll basically do a piece of ledger germane. They'll show you some conjuring. It won't be framed as that. It will be framed as a ritual or something that's real. And then you have that moment of astonishment of like, holy cow, he just, he just dissolved this cloud in the sky with his mind. Or he just produced fire from, from his hand by casting a spell. And that, that experience sets the stage for miracles. And it also, essentially, if you think about it, it's the mind and the spirit's power over physical reality, right? You could put a coin in your hand, say a magic word, right? Cast a spell, open your hand and the coin's gone. Mm. That's what ritual and magic are all about. And so if you do that and someone, if you do it well enough and someone believes that it's real or even a, even a part of them believes that it's real, it's much easier to then go ahead and, and heal them because... Now they believe that miracles are, are real. Um, that's why it's called a sacred trap, because you're kind of bringing them in. You are, you are tricking them, but it is for, for good cause. For their own good. Yeah, yeah I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's um, creating faith where there wasn't any. And you're letting mm-hmm. somebody know that the world as they see it is, is not exactly all that there is. Yeah, exactly. And that's like a, being depressed. It's just like you see the world through this, uh, this is how things are. Yep. But the truth is, it's not. It's how you feel right now, but mm-hmm. it's going to be different in a few minutes, tomorrow, next week. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. That I mean, a big part of a hypnotic technique that I love is you essentially bring their attention to another perspective. So if someone, you know, if someone can't, has a hard time sleeping, for instance, you remind them of the fact that when they were first born, pretty much all they did was sleep. Yeah. And it was the easiest thing in the world for them to sleep very deeply. Oh. And that's a shift in perspective. Um, or, or again, like if, if it's depression, for instance, right? Uh, you know, there's so many examples, right, where things getting quiet and still and heavy, are, it's not a bad thing. You know, bears hibernate in the winter, right? And that's not bad. It's, it's just natural, um, you know, as an example. But it really depends on the nature of the person. But there's always examples of, of new perspectives that you can, you can give people. And people will always make the best choice available to them. So what hypnosis is, is a lot about doing is giving them better choices, so they can make a better choice for themselves. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on now? Because uh, I know, I mean, I, I, I'm always working on things. I, I'm super excited about what I'm going to do next, and, and I'm dreaming and, and all that. And I, I know you're, you're the same. What are, what are you doing? What are you working on? Um, what am I working on? Uh, right now, I'm, I'm just really, really busy with, with clients. So I'm, I'm working... I've, I've taken a handful of days off in the last year. So I've been working really, really nonstop. I'm looking at this year of quarantine as my residency. Yeah. So this is me really building the muscles, working with clients. So that's really been my number one thing. I'm, I'm reading every day. I'm reading a ton um, to get better. And I love reading because I get to study. And then as soon as I'm done studying, I get to go and, and practice Point and actually action. work with people and use the things I'm learning. Um, apart from that, I'm working on uh, more YouTube content. I really want to start putting out videos. Yes, um, do it. I feel like I, I, I like sharing ideas. I like talking about the things I'm interested in. And I find that the things I'm interested in, people are very curious about. So it seems like a really good match. So I definitely am putting out more videos. Um, I'm working on another book right now, uh, which I'm hoping to be a little bit more practical, a little bit more hands-on. Um, I'm also really interested now in putting out a just sort of a series of, of hypnotherapeutic audio recordings so people can download them on their phone, listen to them as they go to sleep or you know in their armchair and get the same benefits or a lot of the benefits that my clients get um, without really ever having met me. So uh, I'm sort of, I'm trying to duplicate myself right now, really largely. That's, that's what I'm doing. Make do two things at once. That's so exciting. Um, is there, I guess I know this answer for myself, but do you sometimes feel, um, and this isn't a bad thing that there are two versions of you. There's, there's Lucas, the hip, hypnotherapist, hypnotist, mm -hmm. and mentalist and all that. And, and then there's just like, you're just a dude. <laughs> um, I think those are one and the same. I, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's funny. I used to feel segmented. I definitely used to feel that way because I used to do, you know, when I was doing mentalism or when I was doing magic, I always felt that I wanted those things to be spiritual or interesting or philosophical. And I tried to make the shows that way too, but it was always kind of impossible. It was really very much like, you know, trying to eat soup with a, with a fork. It, it just wasn't working. Um, now that I'm, working more as a hypnotherapist and working with clients and writing and focusing more on that side of myself. 
I feel like that's really who I am and I feel like I've really embraced it and it's something that I was very resistant to doing for a long time and now I've done it and I feel really empowered for having done that and I feel really kind of unified as a person. I don't, I don't feel that sort of double life anymore, maybe how I used to. Um, but uh, I, you know, I like when people ask me what I do because it gives yeah. me a chance to, to talk about it with them and answer their questions. Yeah, I think... Um I do think that you no, know, you have to do something that uh, is very interesting that people find interesting. But I think no matter what you did, given your interest in what you're doing, like people would be interested no matter what. Yeah, I think maybe. Yeah, I, I think I, don't know. I think you're. <laughs> maybe. I think you're. Um, if I was an accountant, though, and I really just I, yeah, loved, that'd be a I tough loved sell. counting things. That'd be a tough. You know? sell. That's what accountants do, right? They count I think things. So. I don't know. I took an accounting class once, and it, I failed. It was terrible. It's the worst thing. Yeah, math is. Uh, Professor uh, killed himself. It was terrible. Are you serious? No, no. But he looked are you like, kidding me? Yeah, oh, okay. Kidding, sorry. That's why I dropped out of school. I felt like all the. Well, that's the thing. I think. I do. I think if you're interested in something, you can get someone else to be interested in it. I think it helps. Um, it helps even more if what you're talking about is genuinely interesting. You yeah. know, so um, you can make something uninteresting interesting, but it's easier if it's interesting. Absolutely. Um, I have like comedians that I love that are into sports, and I listen to them talk about sports. And I, I don't care about sports at all. I have no interest. And in, but I, I'll sometimes I'll enjoy hearing them talk about a game just because well they're such interesting people and. Uh, they're very passionate about it. So I think I just enjoy the fact that they're excited. But uh, I have no interest in, like, who yeah. the Lakers, I don't know, the Lakers, right? They're a basketball team. I'm sure if you heard someone who was not entertaining talk about sports, you'd probably yeah maybe lose interest. Yes. But, yeah, I think I think that's kind of a part of my job, in a way, is to be a liaison between the the general populace and this very niche, very misunderstood topic. But... Could we, I, we spoke about it a little bit, but like I want to talk about the misunderstood part because that's charming to me. That it's, it's misunderstood. Yes, I, I can oh, yeah. relate to it. I think that I think everything. I think music songs are misunderstood, but it's less accepted that they're misunderstood. But I think everyone will go like, "Oh yeah, this is misunderstood." But can you talk about that? How is it misunderstood? Yeah. You're trying to change it, or like, what do you want? How do you want? It yeah, to- I mean, I, I was working on a, a TV project before the quarantine started, and that kind of threw our plans off because you know now now production is really frozen. But the 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 goal of, of any of all that public uh, interaction is about changing the the changing the way people see hypnosis. That's that's something I'm really passionate about because the more I learn about hypnosis and the more I work with clients, the more I realize, holy cow, this stuff is really 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 strong. Healing. Yeah, I'm working with clients who come to see me and they've seen, they've done everything you can imagine. You know, medication. Yeah, you're not like the first stop. <laughs> I'm the last stop. Yeah. I'm absolutely, I'm the person that people come to see when they've tried everything else and oh, nothing worked. And, and I don't know whether to be insulted or complimented by that of like, yeah, both. they're like, I was at my, you know, this is my last resort. You know, it was like, okay, <laughs> thanks. Um, and I think the reason that is is because people don't think of hypnosis as a viable option. They think it's kind of silly. They're like, hypnosis? Yeah, I, get, I mean, I would only do that if I tried everything else and nothing worked, that, which yeah. is kind of what people end up doing. Um, but it works for those people. You know, I have clients who've, done, who've seen traditional therapists, energy workers, acupuncturists, pastors, 
Uh, they've done, they've tried medication, they've done psychedelics, they've done, uh, you know, magnetic treatment, they've done brain stimulation, they've done everything you can possibly imagine. And they notice changes with this work and, and seeing the impact it has, but also just seeing the elements of it that are purely exploratory. Like I, I, when I first was learning hypnosis, I would help all my friends memorize their textbooks so they could pass their midterms uh, without studying. And... <laughs> And helping friends, you know, uh, with test anxiety, you know, and so it was like even back like in high school, seeing the impact of it and seeing that it was this thing that I didn't really thoroughly understand, but I could still use and, and help people with. That'd so be a I'll, great movie, just like high school and like... Uh, high school hypnotist? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Well, unfortunately, I think a big part of the reason that hypnosis is misunderstood is because it's been willfully misunderstood. If you look at any example of it in TV or film or anywhere, it's completely inaccurate, first of all. But also, it's, it's, it's either usually the villain. It's usually a villain using it. It's a bad guy. You know, yeah. it's, it's mind control, brainwashing. Um, it's a documentary about a cult leader who uses it. Wow. Or it's kind of ridiculed. It's the swinging pocket watch. It's the stage hypnotist. Right. Um, and I, I don't know why that is, though. Because... A part, part of me feels like it's intentional because it's really powerful and it's actually much easier to kind of hide something in plain sight and, and diminish something and, and belittle something than it is to make it uh, and give it the respect that I think it deserves. But yeah, I mean, a part of my goal is to show people that it's much more than losing weight or quitting smoking or, or stage hypnosis. Um, it's much, much more than that. And the thing that frustrates me is that I think most hypnotists don't think it's anything more than quitting smoking or losing weight. You know, so even uh-huh. the, the, our own practitioners are not really treating it well. Do you have heroes? Do you have people that you look up to and mentors and whatnot? Um, I have a lot of mentors. I have um, my first mentor I met when I was 11 years old who taught me magic. Uh, his name's Brad. Now he's just a really great friend of mine. He's just a mentor as a person, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a hypnosis teacher who lives in Woodstock. And he does singing bowl concerts and sweat lodges, and he's very um, connected to shamanic traditions and that more that perspective. Um, and then I also have a a, um, a teacher, a divination teacher, a tarot teacher, um, who's a, sort of a conceptual artist and a poet. Um, but I would say my hero, not a mentor, but a hero, is Milton Erickson, who and a lot of people would consider the father of modern hypnotherapy. And they called him the the wizard of the desert because he lived in Arizona and he pretty much pioneered this style of hypnosis that I use, which is Ericksonian hypnosis, which is very much about storytelling, very much about metaphor. It's very sneaky. Um, It's not systematic. It's very flexible. The example I use, right, is that Ericksonian hypnosis is like jazz. It's like improvisational jazz. It's different every night. It's different no matter who's in front of you. And it's super flexible. Um, but it's not practiced that much. And it's really hard to learn. And it's even harder to teach. Because it is intuitive. It really is intuitive. Um, that's the style that I learned. And it took me about eight years to even feel competent doing it. Wow. Um, so it's, it's... Do you think you'll teach uh, people or somebody? Yeah, that's something else I'm working on is... Um, well, I got licensed to, to certify other people. Um, so I, I now certify and license other hypnotherapists mm-hmm. through the International Certifying Board of Clinical Hypnotherapy. It's a bit of a mouthful. Nice. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I want to take on most hypnosis trainings are really poor. They yeah, last figure. they last two or three days. Um, they're really basic. They kind of gloss over a lot of information. And they're not really aimed at competency. They're aimed at just dumping information. Cool, now, now you have all the information. Great, go out and work. Um, which I think is a big mistake because it lowers the, the quality of the practitioner. So I'm taking on five or six people a year, and it's a year-long program, mm -hmm. not a weekend program. It's oh, a yeah. full year. And it goes into everything about hypnosis that they would need to know from working with specific issues to actually building their practice. So I want to produce like good practitioners. I want people, I want people who leave this apprenticeship, this year long training to be really exceptional at what they do and to be really, really competent at helping people. Um, that way I don't have to, <laughs> I also don't want to be embarrassed that someone's yeah. like, Oh yeah, Lucas taught me and they have no idea what they're <laughs> doing. So I want to make sure that I only swinging watches at a strip mall. Yeah, well, you, we don't want that. That's the majority of what's out there, unfortunately. Um, hypnosis is so fascinating. It's so powerful, too, because... I don't know why, but I, I don't know if it's because of Freud or... We have this conception in our culture that the unconscious mind, that anything, anything that you can't see or anything that's below perception is dangerous, basically, or dark, right? Um, that's kind of the collective understanding, right? That's why, that's why, again, if you watch movies or TV or, or read books where there's any kind of magic, if it's, if it's magic for good, then it's for children. And if it's magic for darkness, for manipulation, for, for evil, then that's mostly what you see. And that's basically saying that anything unconscious is dark, sinister. That's where all your monsters are. That's where all your problems are, right? And that's a Freudian idea. It's that your unconscious is the storage of all of your toxic beliefs, your uh, sort of unaccessed desires, and just the worst parts of you. And I think, I think that should change because I don't, I don't think it's true. I think your unconscious and what's below the surface is where peace is and light and, and positive elements like creativity and intuition i mean all that's underneath there and that's hypnosis is a really really great doorway to get to that so i think that's that's probably my motivation to wanting to change people's perception that's beautiful um we're gonna wrap it up soon i want to talk about henry miller uh before that i have a funny this is my only experience with hypnotism um in my life so i was a kid in camp and i must have been like 10 i was 13 years old and there was another kid who was 14 that was doing hypnotism. And I was like, what in the world? What is this? And he's like, um, there's this other, there's other kid that's willing to be hypnotized. Like he likes it. Yeah. And he's like, we're going to break into an abandoned bunkhouse. There's like this bunkhouse at the end, uh, that no one was in. We're going to break into it. So we climb in through the windows and we sit down and there's the three of us and I'm just witnessing, I'm just there watching. Mm -hmm. And he gets the kid to, you know, start singing and try to stand up, but he can't stand up and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember this, there was this moment where he's like, oh man, I forgot to tell him like the out. Like when I do that, you're going to come back. And he like freaked out and I freaked out. We're like, is this kid just going to be hypnotized forever? Oh, sure. <laughs> is he going to be in that state forever? Yeah. Um, but it ends up being okay. Uh, Usually does. Yeah. Is there ever a case where it doesn't? 
where someone's stuck in hypnosis or something uh-huh. or yeah um yeah that's that's one of the things i'm making a video on are the sort of the three the three biggest misconceptions about hypnosis all right so subscribe to lucas's youtube channel if you want the answer yes it's just my name lucas handworker spelled uh, h-a-n-d-w-e um is your book still still available yeah it's on amazon i think uh the book i'm working on another one right now and i I think i'm gonna start selling them as pdfs so eventually if people are interested they can get them digitally you should do audiobook as well i don't know if that's i was thinking yeah i think that would be preferable actually i I Mm. like i like reading i like speaking I, i enjoy sort of the rhythmic quality that you can have with that yeah. So recently you convinced me, you and I both have a love for uh, beat poets and, and beat poetry and, and that generation of, of, of artists. Um, you, you told me to get into Henry Miller. Uh, yeah. You suggested... One of my favorite writers. You suggested, what book was it? I own it. I don't, well, uh, Nothing But The Marvelous. Nothing But The Marvelous, which is a great title and I stole it for a song. And he, oh, great. His okay. estate can... It's a me. great word. It's, not, it's an underused word. Marvelous. marvelous. Yeah. I think it went out which because like old ladies using it. Like, oh, that's marvelous or something. Marvelous. Fabulous. Yeah. Bring it back. But um, talk to me about Henry, Henry Miller for a minute. He was yeah. out west, 1940s, 50s? He was all over the place. I love Henry Miller. Um, what do I talk What do you want to know? I mean, what about Henry Miller? Well, it's a very, uh, very rich subject. I guess give me the Wikipedia version. Like... He was born when, like around oh, like when? Like who he was? 30s, 40s? No, I think he was, I may be mistaken. I think he was, then? no, he was born After? in like the early 1900s. I think Ooh, he was okay. born 1910s or something like that. Because oh. he died in 19, I think he died in the 80s or in the very early 80s, late 70s in his 90s. So I think he was even born in the 19th century. I think he was born in wow. late 1800s. But he inspired all the beat poets, um, mm-hmm. and his books were banned in America for a very long time because they're very lurid. But just one of my favorite writers, he was the person who inspired me to write because he would take his everyday experiences and turn them into these really marvelous, um, just incredible descriptions. I mean, he, he, he could make anything he could make anything interesting. You know, he talked about literally getting a drink at a bar and that became interesting. He talked about walking down the street and that became interesting. Um, he, he's from Brooklyn originally, but when he was very young, he moved to Paris, not a dollar in his pocket, you know, just, just the, just the clothes on his back basically. And basically it was like a vagabond just kind of like, you know, like a, a bum wandering the streets, um, and just writing and experiencing and, and, just an ecstatic figure, you know, just someone who just wanted to gobble up all the experiences of life. And, and, uh, and, you know, and when the, when the second world war broke out, he came back to America and he traveled across the United States in this like beat up rundown car. And he wrote a book about that called the air conditioned nightmare, which was his description of America. Um, and his stories are just so fantastic because he just, he makes the, the very mundane, very interesting. And I think that's really appealing to me that you could do that, that you could, you could take sitting in traffic and make it a, a metaphor for existence. And he, he's just also just a fantastic writer. Um, something else for anyone out there listening, Henry Miller didn't write his first book until he was in his mid forties. So it's not mm-hmm. too late. This is someone who worked as a, a busboy, a, a mechanic, a, a day laborer, just every odd job, and didn't write his first book until he was in his mid-40s, and now he's you know, considered one of the 
one of the most influential writers anyway the last 100 years yeah unless you're 50 that's it (laughs) Um, well no i mean even at 50 right you can do a lot of great things no i'm kidding uh my some of my favorite like leonard cohen leonard cohen didn't become a musician until like well into his 30s which you know in in musician years is older than that i think there's something to be said about being ready you know being ripened dude i mean i'm uh I'm still not ready completely. And when I was like 20 or whatever, um, I thought I was ready. And and the older you get, you're like, oh, thank God. Like, thank God I didn't have, thank God I didn't have like a fraction of the success I wanted and expected at that age. Cause it just would have been terrible. Like I really had nothing to say. And um, even though I, I, I had lit, I thought I'd lived life. I think a lot of living life is just experience. Like, I thought I was so mature until I was, like, 23, and I was like, oh, I'm just a child. I have a lot to learn, you know? Yeah, well, I think they say that the the blessings are the wishes that aren't granted. So thank you very much uh, for talking to me, man. I I love talking to you. We talk all the time, um, but we we talk on the phone or whatever, rarely with microphones. How do you think this compared to, like, a normal you and I conversation? Uh, you had all these quite, you were very prepared. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to, to do this again. I think there's lots to explore. Me too. I use very little for my notes here, but I, I bought this notebook for podcasts just to, it's a nice one. It's split. Yeah. 50, um, 15. So com. you're on Instagram. Uh, yeah. Lucas Handworker. Uh, just, just Google me folks. Just, just Google it. Google him, and um, (laughs) thank you very much for listening. This is very, very exciting, and I hope this thing was recording. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, All right, lots of love. Thank you, dear friends. Uh, Appreciate you, and see you soon. (laughs) 